The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Julia Turner, and this is the Slate Culture Gab Fest, You Will Never Be Enough edition. It's Wednesday, August 22nd, 2018. On today's show, Crazy Rich Asians, the new movie from John Chu, is the biggest major studio release with an all-Asian cast since 1993's The Joy Luck Club. We'll discuss. Then, Younger, the TV land sitcom about a 40-year-old woman passing herself off as a 26-year-old in order to land a job in publishing, is now in its fifth season. I have been a stealth secret sly fan, sort of apart from my culture-reviewing capacities on this show, and now we've yoinked it into the subject of discussion. Finally, we ask the question, what's the deal with Elon Musk? We want to talk about him as a cultural figure which he is. Steve and Dana are both on vacation. I am back, but I am here with the host of Slate's Shakespeare and Politics podcast, Lend Me Your Ears, Isaac Butler. Hi, Julia. Welcome. I'm so excited to have you on the show. We should probably promise listeners that we won't talk for 50 minutes uninterrupted about the finer points of Measure for Measure, which is what we did the last time we shared a podcast studio. Indeed. But it could happen. And making her Culture Gab Fest co-hosting debut, Ingu Kang. Hi. Hello. So glad to have you here. Uh, Let us begin by discussing the movie Crazy Rich Asians. It's based on the book by Kevin Kwan, which I believe I've endorsed that book series on this show, and stars Constance Wu, Henry Golding, Michelle Yeoh, Aquafina, among many, 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 many others. Directed by John Chu, much has been written about this movie's groundbreaking cast and now box office success, some by our own Ingu Kang. Before we dig into the movie, let's listen to a clip. Singapore, for spring break. Colin's wedding. We've been dating for over a year now, and I think it's about time people met my beautiful girlfriend. Come on. I'm Colin's best man. Don't you want to see where I grew up? Meet my family, my Ama, and meet up with that strange college roommate of yours. Take Lynn. Mm-hmm. She has been begging me to come visit her, you know. The universe has spoken. It wants you over there. Come to Singapore. I want the whole island to meet the brilliant Rachel Chu. All right. Well, that clip gives us a whole bunch of expository setup and not a ton of Constance Wu, America's new sweetheart, the star of this film. You hear just her glancing voice there. But... Uh, let's begin with our critic, Ingu. You reviewed the film for us. Please tell us what you thought of it. I really adore this movie. It is very much an Asian-American translation of Kevin Kwan's book, um, which I think is really interested in parsing out the different sources of wealth and the different um, desirabilities of different types of wealth in China um, and Singapore, specifically how Singaporean wealth relates to, uh, I guess, like the nouveau riche of China. And a lot of it is sort of about <laughs> how old money in Singapore is superior to new money in China, which is not as present in the movie, um, because it's a story about an Asian-American woman who goes to Asia, discovers she is not the same type of Asian as the people that she encounters, um, and then realizes through these different forms of uh, cultural and economic uh, alienation that she is actually quite proud of where she comes from and realizes she doesn't need to do any 
um, overcompensating to deserve the hand of her boyfriend, who is very, very rich. Yeah, he's he's like a Singaporean Prince Charming, essentially. And a dreamboat. Also a, also a dreamboat. Lots of dreamboats. Basically, <laughs> everybody in this movie is a dreamboat. And if you like abs, this is the movie for you. One thing that this movie does is sexualize Asian men, like very explicitly, in a way that Hollywood does not always take the time to do. Uh, and you, it, it's interesting, I think, to watch a romantic comedy that's like a nice, bright, buoyant, well-made charming, delightful romantic comedy uh, and experience it also freighted with so many of the expectations of being such an unusual film for Hollywood in that it is so full of of Asian characters of all kinds. And so you see a lot of beefcake and then you think about the meaning of the beefcake, <laughs> which is like maybe a lot to put on this movie that is like a charming rom-com based on a compelling and slightly goofy book series Uh, Isaac, what did you make of the film? So, yeah, I mean, it's interesting that you brought that up because one of the things that I wrote is burden of expectations in my notebook and underlined it a few times. And, And I do think that it is too bad that due to, well, frankly, Hollywood racism and the long gap between this film and the Joy Luck Club that, uh, it, 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 it cannot sort of in our discourse that, you know, it can't only be a delightful August sort of princess fantasy rom com film. Like there's there's sort of like a lot more kind of surrounding it. Um, that said, I mean, like I enjoyed the movie quite a bit. Um, I have a, a Malaysian Chinese family that grew up in Singapore. I've been to Singapore a few times. It was really great to see the hawker markets and the durian on the back of the trucks and hear Singlish. And, you know, that, you know, brought back a lot of, of memories of a certain time of my life as well. And I really appreciated the cultural specificity of it. I, I don't know that I think it's like the greatest rom-com I've ever seen or anything like that. But I also don't think it needs to be. I don't think it it should be. I, 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 I enjoyed it, and that was enough. I want to say a couple of things about the rom-com factor, actually, because I think um, something that we're kind of dancing around is how white most romantic comedies actually are. Um, I think if we're thinking about the staples of the genre they're very much about a heterosexual white couple. And any sort of deviation from that seems to be almost just like um, calculation or a compensation for that type of depiction and all that it leaves out. I think this idea that Asian people can be vulnerable and fall in love and want and be lovable is like weirdly radical. Yeah, I thought that passage from your review was so smart and so well put. And I think one thing this movie reminded me of, I mean, if you think about the various heartening steps for representation in Hollywood in the last few years, the the movie that this reminded me the most of um, is Wonder Woman more than Get Out. And I'm here, you know, it's obviously sort of ridiculous to lump all of these movies together at all, but I do think they have in common the fact that they are stories that Hollywood might not have told 10 years ago, um, where it skips the tortured set of steps that often happen in Hollywood, where the movie is uh, about the fact that it is putting 
an Asian character in a place where it might not be. It's not an interracial romance between an Asian person and a white person that explicitly interrogates the question of expectations of Asian. Like it just dispenses with that whole step, like the driving Miss Daisy step in representation <laughs> of, of of here's how you get a figure who's not usually on screen on screen by by giving a white point of entree and just leapfrogs forward to be a movie that has no white characters in it. There's a set piece at the beginning in which there are a few white actors and there are a few white um, kind of sex pot ornaments at a bachelor party. And other than that, there's almost no white speaking roles and no right character scene. And it just immediately does the act of representation that's been missing. And it reminded me of the moment in Wonder Woman where you see Gal Gadot physically rescue Chris Pine. And you're just like, why have I never seen yeah. a woman be strong in that way? Like it, 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 it doesn't, the, the freighting is tacit rather than explicit. It's subtext rather than text. And I think that's part of what makes this feel so powerful. So even though you're just buoyed along enjoying the romantic comedy, which we should also stipulate, independent of questions of ethnicity, romantic comedies are an endangered species at this point. So it's also just pleasant at the end of summer for one of the big, highly anticipated movies to be a Cinderella romance uh, in and of itself. And then you get to feel this pleasure of how fresh and exciting it is to experience this familiar form, if less used now form, in an entirely different landscape. The the one thing about it that that I I thought though as I was as I was watching it was that there is a way in which I do think the movie like you have to buy into the appeal of having that much wealth on some level. Do you know what I mean? Like you have to sort of be, she gets a little, she's a little seduced by it uh, as well as trying to navigate it at the same time. Right. That's one of the things that's going, how, how do I put this? There was, there was a part of me that was not along for that part of the journey. I, I, I don't know that, 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 that sort of the kind of, um, overabundant the overabundant riches of it which is right there in the title i mean don't don't get me wrong do you know what i mean that i wasn't like a hundred percent on on board for that so while i enjoyed it there was a part where like sometimes i felt like shouldn't someone roll their eyes at this like i and part of it was the audience i saw it with like uh when they got to the wedding um, where there where some there's a wedding, someone singing a kind of very beautiful cover of Only Fools Rush In. It's actually Kina Granis, who is a extremely famous Asian American YouTuber. Oh, ah. Ah, that's great. Yeah, I wrote about a bunch of little Easter eggs for an Asian American audience, also for Slate. What was really fascinating was there was like a divide in the audience I saw it with between people who thought the um, elaborateness of the wedding was ridiculous and were laughing at it and people who found it unbelievably moving and were, you know, tearing up at it. And I felt uh, uh, um, both of those impulses at the same time. I, I don't know. I had a, I had an odd experience of the actual like the richness of it. I feel like a lot of romantic comedies are extremely dependent on ideas of affluence. I think you know, Nancy Myers and her beautiful, beautiful kitchens have been a cultural punchline for at least a decade now for a reason. I kind of find the cri criticism that, like, the movie is not 
socialist or Marxist enough in its <laughs> evaluation of Asia to be a little bizarre. The movie is obviously about uh, that kind of class alienation that like Rachel feels. And I think that if you were going to say from a character point of view that uh, Rachel, as an economics professor, should maybe be more worried about income inequality in Singapore. I think that would be one thing. But to fault the movie for this is a little annoying to me because it's about a middle-class Asian Americans encounter with the hyper-rich and... That's just what the story is. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't necessarily think it's a problem with the movie. It's just something that affected my reaction to it. You are, at, like I said, it's right there in the title. You're absolutely correct. It's the given circumstances of the film. Um, I I just, uh, in, in the same way that I have, I sometimes find myself looking at those Nancy Myers kitchens and being like, oh, this kitchen, you know, like I had a kind of similar, you know, uh, uh, uh one step remove from the film at some of those those moments it is absolutely core to what the movie is doing that it that it do that i completely agree with you about that i don't need the movie to have a marxist like a brechtian moment where a character turns to the audience and has a marxist critique of uh, old money in singapore for sure I would love for us to pause briefly to celebrate constance wu's performance before we wrap up because i definitely walked out of the movie just saying the phrase Constance Wu is America's sweetheart Constance Wu is America's sweetheart Constance Wu is America's sweetheart over and over and over in my head like I just want it to be the 90s and for her to be the star of every romantic comedy and for them to only make romantic comedies anymore like I am ready for her to fall in love with an architect I'm ready for her to fall in love with the coach of the opposing basketball team I'm ready for her to fall in love <laughs> as, and as a scientist in Antarctica who's working with a guy at the North Pole like I'm so here for Constance Wu and I recognize that I just never watch Fresh Off the Boat and I'm an idiot and I'm late to the party. But can 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 you guys just like join me in the cavell for a minute? Absolutely. I mean, she's unbelievably charismatic and funny and a very, very dynamic actor with a wide range. And I yeah, I hope we start seeing her in everything. For all that I would have loved to see Crazy Rich Asians adapted into an unending TV show because the world Quan makes is so rich. It could support like a gajillion episodes forever, I think. Um, it's really exciting to see Wu get the star turn. Before we move on to Younger, let's do the business. Isaac, what have we got this week? Well, first up, tickets are still available for Slate Day, a live podcast experience produced in connection with the Texas Tribune Festival. Join Slate's politically-minded shows, the Political Gabfest, Trumpcast, Amicus, El Gabfest, and The Gist. Uh, Slate Day will take place at the Capitol Factory in downtown Austin, Texas, on Saturday, September 29th, in partnership with the Texas Tribune Festival. This is an intimate venue with limited seating, so go to slate.com slash live for tickets and information. In Slate Plus today, we're going to be talking about the movies you see on airplanes. What movies do you like to watch either on your own screen or over the shoulder of the person next to you on a plane? And to hear segments like that and to get ad-free podcasts, sign up for Slate Plus. Slate Plus is our membership program and is a great way to support us. For just $35 for your first year, you can help cover the cost of producing the Culture Gab Fest and your other favorite Slate shows. And of course, in return, you'll get extended ad-free versions of this show and other great Slate podcasts 
podcasts and a ton of other great benefits. So if you'd like to support the Culture Gab Fest, go to slate.com slash culture plus and join Slate Plus today. Okay, let's go. Younger is a sitcom on TV land starring Sutton Foster as a divorced mother in her 40s, pretending to be in her late 20s in order to land a job in publishing, a world she left 15 years prior to raise a family. The show leans heavily on Sutton Foster's charms, gives her one 26-year-old boyfriend and one 40-something boyfriend, uh, ruthlessly and with surprising accuracy and subtlety satirizes uh, the media moment, uh, naming proper names. It features heavily some Sex in the City DNA and creator Darren Starr and costume designer Patricia Field and has weirdly been my guilty pleasure TV show, like what I watch when I'm watching something that I'm not watching to discuss on this show. So now you guys are taking the, my undiscussable favorite thing to watch into the territory of discussability. Let's listen to a clip. I worked at Random House for three years. I started as an assistant to a marketing VP and then I worked my way up to junior editor. Wow, impressive. At the time, I was one of the youngest people ever to make editor. I was 25. I'm 25. Don't worry, you don't look a day over seven. (laughs) And then for the past, what, 15 years, nothing? I quit to raise my child, Caitlin, who's now spending her senior year in an exchange program in India. Look, I know I've been out of play for a while, but I am a much smarter, more capable person today than I was 15 years ago. Mm, I'm sure. I'm ready to throw myself back into work 24-7. I'm ready to pick up where I left off. Well, it has been quite a long hiatus, Liza. Things have changed. Facebook, Twitter, iPhones. iPads, eBooks, YouTube. Instagram, Snapchat, Skype. Pinterest. Bang with friends. Seriously? You being with friends? It's way better than Tinder. So, Julia, you mentioned earlier that it was one of your guilty pleasures, and I'm, I'm curious about what makes it a guilty pleasure. Ugh, I don't even, I don't know why I said that, because I don't even believe in guilty pleasures. I think I draw a line in my personal culture consumption between things I am watching with a critical eye to consider how we might discuss them on this show or uh, cover them in Slate or whether they might prompt ideas I should pop into a Slate channel to get someone to do something about. And I have a very limited set of media experiences that aren't work. Like, it's very rare for me to read anything in any form of media that doesn't make me think like, oof, we should have hired that person or we should assign a piece about that or we should, you know, let's like the real estate section and law and order reruns and everything else is like a little bit work. And for some reason, I had classed this show as not work. I think, honestly, because of snobbery about its auspices, like TV land, Hillary Duff, <laughs> uh, 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 you know, this is like a bonbon. We've got all this prestige TV and everybody's dying left, right and center. And I'm just going to like sneak off to the side since they canceled Bunheads and hang out with Sutton Foster and Hillary Duff. Like, I think I thought maybe it was like a you know, an updated Disney show or something like high school. I don't even know what Hillary Duff was in. Anyway, uh, however, it's basically the successor to Sex in the City, which love or hate Sex in the City. It is a show about sex, work and womanhood that is very plugged into extremely current cultural questions and uses the mechanics of this publishing house rather than the mechanics of Carrie's dubious sex advice column uh, to as an entree to be extremely topical and have all sorts of thinly veiled stand-ins for actual current media celebrities. Um, 
and thus to be really up to date about all of our preoccupations, have pretty smart and with it nods to those questions. Although fundamentally the point, I mean, it's 22 minute comedy, like the, it always moves briskly on from whatever ideas raised by the book pitch that week uh, to like, which of the guys is Liza really in love with? And what's going to happen and who's she lying to this week and what are the moral stakes based on that? But yeah, I misjudged it. Like I, I, a, I don't believe in guilty pleasures. I did file it briefly as not work, but that was stupid because I think it's a really smart show. That is what I meant by that. If we're going to push that Sex in the City comparison further, I think it is worth noting that it is an extremely white version of New York City. Although I guess you can also make the argument that publishing itself is a very white industry. Um, but I thought that was worth noting. That said, I love this show. <laughs> I love this show so much. Um, and I wanted to write about it because um, I think that this is one of those shows that gets classified as women's entertainment. And because it's a lighthearted tone, it doesn't get the kind of uh, serious treatment that a lot of more prestige seeming but honestly, less interesting shows. So the piece that I wrote about it for Slate was about how this show, in the first half of the current season, which is the fifth season, how it tackles Me Too in its like own very specific way. And I thought it was a very good example of how the show takes on heavy topics with a lightness of tone, but also a... Um, surprising emotional sensitivity to how it affects the characters. Emotional sensitivity and moral seriousness, I think. It's like a 22-minute bonbon that has like a real moral backbone, which is part of what means, part of why I can, you know, just lightly flit among these thorny questions and yet not feel like it's uh, brainlessly exploiting them to seem with it or something. Yes. And I think you could maybe accuse the first season, which relied on a lot more jokes about like, oh, millennials, they're so kooky. Um, <laughs> there were probably one too many of those jokes in the first season. But the first season of Sex and the City was also quite bad. I mean, one thing that I think has been really nice about the show is characters who were any character who initially presents as an obstacle or a... Um, kind of figure to be lied to and put one over upon just inevitably gets 3D printed into a really interesting character. Even the daughter, the daughter who sort of like appears on Skype from her year in India like a couple times in season one is now like a character who shows up in scenes and has her own emotional dilemmas and um, like just no part of the pig is wasted in this show. Like any little sideways figment of a character who turns up ends up becoming like a pretty rich part of the whole mm. Isaac yeah. you are not a you are not a pre-existing watcher I'm not of this a pre-existing show. watcher of tell the us, show which was what you made of it well first of all I should say that you know one of my favorite things about it um, um, I have mixed feelings about the show but one of my favorite things about it is also there's like lots of really great musical theater actors in it so you know Sutton it's Foster here. it's very yeah. New York yeah. Sutton Foster Miriam Shore uh, Jane Krakowski Kristen Chenoweth you know it's like really 
I just love seeing all those folks. You know, I like seeing them on stage. I like seeing them on my television. Um, the show that it also reminded me of, and I say this as someone who's seen every episode of Sex in the City and likes Sex in the City, but the show it also reminded me of is The Good Wife, uh, which is also a show about someone who uh, uh, has, you know, marital troubles and reenters the the workforce uh, that has changed and is sort of trying to navigate that um, uh, as a woman. She does not masquerade as 26 years old, but, you know, uh, and that tries to stay on top of what's going on in politics and culture in this kind of joking way with a lot of analogs to contemporary things. So what you're saying humor. is I should watch The Good Wife, which I never did. Oh, I didn't know that. Uh, uh, <laughs> uh, I, I will I will also, uh, and I should just say my favorite um, little public Publishing wink they have is P is for Pigeon, the parody of H is for Hawk. Uh, and I loved, uh, I, Ingo, I thought your piece did a really great job of articulating like all sorts of things that the show is doing that are interesting. I will just say, I don't find it, I, I do not find the line to line writing particularly funny. Uh, but like often I just don't find the jokes all that funny. And so, um, uh, uh, I don't know why that is, but so there's a way in which I'm like, I feel like I should be laughing more in a some, something that is a 22 minute comedy uh, on TV um, and not one of those prestige sad comedies where the point is that you feel bad and don't laugh at all. But one in which you are one in which you are supposed to be laughing, you know, um, uh, and there is a weird thing about its rhythms. I mean, Julia, you noted that it does this really great job of lightly skipping on top of things and that there's a lot going on in each episode. But part of what that means, and I because I had to marathon a lot of it, you know, before this this episode is that each scene is also quite short. They're like four to eight lines. And like there's an immediate plot. There's either an immediate plot development an exposition dump or a setup and a punchline for a joke and then they move on right and there was something about seeing that rhythm over and over and over again over the course of four days that was that became very difficult for me to take I think if I was watching it once a week uh, I would enjoy it a lot more than I wound up doing that's so interesting I agree that I don't watch the show for its comedy and I also think the sort of split in television shows with the idea that like if it's 40 to 60 minutes it's a drama and if it's 20 to 30 minutes it's a comedy (laughs) which is like such a given of making television is and sort of invisible to like a lot of watchers of tv is just ludicrous like this would make total sense as a 40 minute network drama that was sort of like a light love story like a crazy ex-girlfriend i mean it's it's, or the good wife i mean the good wife's very funny uh it's billed as a drama because it's 45 minutes but it's mostly comedic right so i definitely would agree like i don't watch this for the jokes it's not veep it's not 30 rock it's it's full of knowing cultural references but they're really just used to um give you a little bit of something to like wink at and recognize as you watch the plot unfold the hillary duff character is uh, publishing the book of and entangled currently with a Pod Save America Monkey figure, and like that's that's sort of amusing. It's not hilarious. He's um, <laughs> kind of smug and self regarding in a way that is amusing, but not jokesy. I think the show that it also reminds me of, other than Sex and the City, is actually Friends. Um, and I know that. Friends is a lightning rod for a lot of people for many good reasons. But I think that one of the things that this show does really well is that it's a really great romantic comedy spread out across many different seasons. And there's a serialized element to that romantic comedy that I think works incredibly well. Um, Right now, 
I guess really for most of the show, Liza has been caught between the 20-something boyfriend that she first got when she moved back to New York City and her boss, who is the head of the publishing company where she works, who is obviously a much more stately sort of man, um, but with like a really good heart, of course. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But I think that the way that they have played off that love triangle, especially with uh, Charles, um, the publisher's really complicated relationship with his ex-wife and their drawn-out divorce makes the show really feel like it has the weight rather than just being another analog to Bella and Edward and Jacob. Yeah, I I agree. I mean, I think it's that same 3D printing quality. Like, they developed these, the two relationships you would develop if you were, like, sketching this out on a board for season one. All right, let's give her a boyfriend for her young self and a better boyfriend for her true older self, and, like, she'll be torn between them. But they're real, and those relationships are, like, enriching and deepening. And both of the men keep returning, like, you know, it's like the it's like the sun and the moon. They just keep, like, coming <laughs> back in the life, and she keeps being torn between them. But, like, you're not bored of them. And they, the question of whether she should be with it, they just do. They're doing such good work making this light thing tick. Uh, and I've come to really admire a lot about it. And I think, you know, your point about the about race is really smart, Ingu, and I think it speaks to the way in which this show has been classified. Like, in some ways, the world that it's set in is extremely similar to the world of girls, right? It's aspiring right. white literary people uh, and a depiction of the world they're in, which is whiter than a cross-section of New York broadly, and the set of arguments about that show and its depictions of race and how it approached them and how it modified its approach over time happened because people took that show seriously and like thought it was an important show with important things to say and thus should not just like whiff on this huge insignificant issue. And this show, I think, is given a little bit of a pass on that front because everybody's or too many people like me have classed it wrongly as not worth serious consideration. So let us all... Watch younger, take it more seriously, uh, except maybe Isaac, who doesn't love the jokes. All right. Our final topic today, is this If Then, Slate's technology podcast? No, it's not. Is this Slate Money, Slate's podcast on financial markets and the corporations that move our industries? No, it is not. Uh are we Slate's culture podcast? And do we reckon with the cultural titans that infiltrate our minds and shape our view of the world? Yes, it is. And that is why we are talking about Elon Musk as a cultural figure. Is he a genius? Is he Einstein? Is he a Bond villain? Is he having a breakdown? What do we make of our cultural fascination with Elon Musk as he presents right now? Isaac, do you have a theory of Elon Musk? I'm not sure I exactly have a theory of him. I I do have a theory about um, the appeal of this particular moment, which is to say that, you know, there are these, you know, uh, particularly tech titans who bestride our narrow world like a colossus. And it's really fun to watch them slip on a banana peel and fall on their face. Right. And that that part of the cultural thing is that once someone has attained that much power, we are looking for the moment where they start to have their 
downfall. And whether I doubt this is Elon Musk's downfall, right? But there you can sense this like slavering hunger for that. Uh, and he appears to be the only theory I could say is that he does appear to be like a deeply odd person. Right. Uh, um, and uh, maybe something uh, like like the person he named his car company after maybe something of a megalomaniac. Uh, and um, uh, what I found interesting, particularly in the readings we were doing this this for this episode, which I didn't really know much about, is his incredibly passionate almost um, religious fan base was, I think, the the thing that I found really interesting about him as his, as this figure, that he has attracted, you know, this sort of extreme fan base that will defend him in these incredibly ugly ways online. I mean, I guess everything does nowadays, but uh, uh, because I don't follow the tech world that much, I was like, really? A, a tech entrepreneur has, you know, like a, a really, you know, John Locke conspiracy-esque fan base? It, it, you know, that that was really fascinating to me. Ingu, you're a West Coast correspondent. You're you're proximate to Silicon Valley, the Bay Area, at least from where we sit. Uh, what are you? What's your purchase on Elon? Do you have a grand unified theory of Elon Musk? He should probably spend less time at Burning Man. I think is what I think. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think it's great that there's this sort of like, like one particular branch of tech billionaireism um, whose whole thing is to reap the rewards of social progress and then also cast themselves as these really accomplished businessmen. And um, it, he's obviously following in the footsteps of Steve Jobs and putting himself out in the world as this hyper-successful, hyper-capitalist um, profit from the future. And I, there's clearly a backlash against uh, giant tech companies right now in the culture. And I think that part of the backlash against Elon Musk is symptomatic of that larger uh, backlash um, with regard to YouTube and Facebook and all of those things. And part of it is just that, you know, there is sometimes a really thin line between a visionary and a crackpot. And when you don't deliver on these profits that you promise, people are going to start looking at you more as a crackpot than a visionary. Yeah. Tori Bosch, who edits our Future Tense uh, section, has a theory that I believe she refers to as the crackpot line, you know, being mm. the, fu- the Future Tense section. It's about technology in the future and, and sort of uh, the, the kind of policy and politics surrounding it. Um, and basically, she says every single futurist, every person who's obsessed with the future can be classified somewhere on the crackpot spectrum. And you just have to make sure they're like on the right side of the, of the line. So I think that is the exact framing. I think Elon Musk's appeal is super fascinating. And I think the way my theory of the case is that the way he developed this fan army actually has a lot to do with figures like Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump. I think he has avoided um, for all that he is maybe seen as symptomatic of broader tech trends and that a, a brewing backlash against him might be indicative of a, of a growing set of concerns about the power that tech companies have over our lives. He's very different. Like he's a very different figure from Zuckerberg. His companies and the companies he's built are very different from these behemoths, Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Google, Netflix. Like he's 
he's the inventor, right? He's he's not the business guy. He's not the coder. He's an inventor, like a classic, like wild haired in the lab. I'm going to solve the problems of society through my powers of scientific invention. I am going to solve society's problems and make a buck doing so. Like it's a very old American idea. It's a very old capitalist idea. Um, and he uses a language to describe those inventions. He has like a gift for language and plain speech and an avoidance of uh stultifying jargon that reminds me of how Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump connected with their constituents, like the names of his companies, Tesla, which is a little bit veiled, the boring company for the idea for this company that's just going to bore gigantic tunnels and build infrastructure that it's unclear is the best kind of infrastructure. But hey, he's he's you like it's funny to call a company the boring company that's going to make a borer like that's a that's a better name than Microsoft, you know, right. or, or Google <laughs> or Yahoo or Oath. Um, one of the factories where some part of the new, more economical Tesla model is being worked on and made is called the Gigafactory. Why wouldn't you want to go to the Gigafactory instead of like Sector X in Phoenix or whatever they call the fact, you know, like the, he just has a gift for appealing to the part of our uh, of technological change that we live in Um in plain language and with clear joy in the excitement of what we're able to build. Like, what he's done with Tesla is amazing. He took the electric car, a sad kind of green, you know, naderish notion that, like, people in the early aughts thought, oh, yeah, maybe someday we won't use gas in our cars, and, like, built something so dope that it became the status symbol and people who used to drive Maseratis now want Teslas. Like, that's a that's a thing. Like, it's a thing that exists in the world that he made that didn't used to be there. Uh, I don't pretend to understand enough about private space travel and the shift between government and corporate science that is changing the way that we think about outer space and exploring the world to, to really comment with knowledge on what SpaceX is up to and what it's achieved. But... I think he's built his image by capitalizing on being an inventor of stuff and also stuff, not software, right? right? Objects, shit that does stuff, technology you can see the outcomes of, um, and then using like vivid, fun language to describe it and name it, and then being a little bit more accessible and personable than some of these other inscrutable and honestly, more boring, Titans. Something I found really fascinating um, is that a couple of weeks ago, I was talking about Elon Musk with my husband, who is basically works in an engineering-adjacent field and is a huge evangelist for science and all of the marvels that science can do. And I was making some sort of broad generalization about science people Um specifically uh, white men in science. And I used Elon Musk as an example. And my husband immediately just like completely shifted moods and said, Elon Musk is not a science person. He is a capitalist. Mm -hmm. And (laughs) I thought that was very interesting as someone, as coming from someone who reveres science um, because... 
uh, I think in his view, all of the stuff that you uh, were just talking about is so much more related to marketing um, and sort of like selling what science might be able to do as opposed to largely making them and then being practical for mass usage. I think, if anything, the um, person or a character that Elon Musk really reminds me of is Lee Pace's character in the great TV show Halt and Catch Fire, who is this guy who is able to harness people's wonder in a Don Draperish way, but about technology, but also doesn't have like the follow through necessary to make this a reality, especially for um, the especially for mass consumption. Yeah, well, I think that's part of the salesman quality that that. Uh, I was talking about with the Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump comparisons. There is some virtue, I think, actually in that seer role, like in actually making something happen, making it real, making it feel like, oh, of course we can have electric cars. Of course cars are going to be electric. Like that is a thing that I think a lot of people feel now that they didn't feel before, that they didn't feel merely at the arrival of the Nissan Leaf. Like And it may may be that the glamour of the Tesla is stupid, and that's a stupid thing to be a persuasive force in the world, but the salesmanship is not empty, I think. Like, it's effective. It's interesting that you compare him to that Lee Pace character, because the other character that that Elon Musk reminds me of a lot right now is Kanye West, in that Mm. there is a prominent person associated with excellence who has produced many things that have changed the way people think about whole fields of endeavor who has always run a little bit hot and like closer to the bone and maybe even a little bit less guarded in their public communications than someone of their excellence and stature typically is, which is a big part of their appeal and part of how they build a fan base. And then that person begins to publicly appear a little bit more unstable and unhealthy and confused than they've seen at previous moments in their career. And you feel like you're watching a some kind of celebrity crack up and you feel yucky about it and also not necessarily entirely, you know, sympathetic and also like it's of a piece with a whole bunch of self-aggrandizing bullshit that never seemed particularly great in the first place. (laughs) But now maybe you have to reclassify some of that as connected to, you know, I mean, you, you can't, we can't really know what someone's actual mental health situation is but right. you, because of the thin membrane between figures like this and the rest of us you feel privy to something that maybe you shouldn't be privy to yeah i mean i guess i feel like there's a way in which you know great salesmen and and i think elon musk like the lee pace character in halt and catch fire right he's like a, a an incredible or don draper is an incredible salesman there's also like a, a vein of charlatanism within that right like that is part of how that seems to work and so you know you have elon musk selling himself as this sort of brilliant not only inventor but businessman but actually his his uh, the his companies rely heavily on government subsidies and tesla would never make money without the, t- the U.S. taxpayer. Right. Or you have um, th- this guy who seems to be able to do everything. But then we say these chinks in his armor like he calls a, a guy who helped rescue 
the Thai soccer team a pedophile on Twitter because the guy dared to, you know, criticize him or or he seems to be getting his company in legal trouble by tweeting out what I originally thought was a marijuana themed joke about taking his company private for 420 a share. Right. So like there there is that weird thing where we are starting to. Um, see the rich vein of, of of charlatanism that runs within, I think, these sort of famous, you know, inventor, businessman, crackpot, futurist types. I, again, I think it's no it's not a coincidence that he named his car company Tesla. Right. Uh, Tesla himself had a vein of charlatanism and a l- lot of crackpottery to go in with his with his futurism. And so so it's it's interesting that we've hit this moment where that is sort of coming to the surface more. He should probably lay off Twitter and take a nap. I think with regard to Twitter, I think like that messianic self-obsession is so much easier to see these days. Or maybe people just have less patience for it um, when they see the kind of havoc that Donald Trump was able to wreak with that quality and people believing uh, in that. And so I guess to me, it's a very unsurprising that the culture or parts of the culture have turned on Elon Musk. Um, I don't know if we have really that much patience anymore for men who promise a lot of things um, and then never seem to deliver, but sure are really busy writing nonsense on Twitter. All right. Well, Elon Musk, as a cultural figure, uh, I have a feeling he will be with us for some time to come and that we may have opportunities to re-examine. All right. Now is the moment in our show when we endorse. Ingu, what have you got? Um, I'm going to recommend an article um, that Alison Wilmore wrote for BuzzFeed. Uh, She wrote about Crazy Rich Asians and also a Netflix movie, also with a female Asian-American lead called To All the Boys I've Loved Before, which is actually a teen rom-com that I kind of hated. But (laughs) the article in itself um, dwells on the issue of Asian-American escapism and what that means in the context of generally pretty heavy films and stories about the Asian-American experience and what this focus on escapism might mean for where Asian-Americans are today. It's, I think, a really incredible uh, and really interesting reframing of Crazy Rich Asians in the context of the romantic comedy, which we've discussed here. Um, But also, there are so many layers to this that I think her piece is really worth reading. Cool. I'll go check that out. I love that piece. Isaac, what's your endorsement? Well, you know, uh, Crazy Rich Asians, uh, obviously, you know, mo- most of that film takes place in Singapore. And so I thought it would be fun to endorse another story that takes place in Singapore, but a very different story. And that is the incredibly brilliant graphic novel, The Art of Charlie Chan Hock Chai by Sunny Liu, which came out in 2015. And uh, that it, it's a really fascinating book because it, it sort of poses as kind of a coffee table art book about a fictitious cartoonist. And then within that and in telling his life story and showing examples of his art, which are, of course, not by him, but by Sonny Liu, the author, it tells the entire story of Singaporean independence and how the uh, democratic dream for Singapore blossomed and then wilted um, and how this artist's life is forever changed by that and his work. Uh, there's an interesting backstory 
story to the book as well. It was given a state arts grant, but uh, after it was completed, the grant was withdrawn because it was viewed as attacking the legitimacy of the Singaporean government. Because of the public kerfuffle around that, it became a huge bestseller. Uh, It's also a totally brilliant book, and I, I recommend everyone read it. Whoa, that sounds so interesting. I didn't know anything about that. Yeah, it's amazing. He, uh, uh, Charlie Chan Hock Chai, the main character, he he might be crazy. He is definitely not rich. Uh, and the story that he tells of Singapore is, is, is really incredible and nuanced. Uh, all right. Love to know about that. Uh, I would like to really go out on a limb and recommend that you read the novel that won the Pulitzer last year for Best Novel of the Year. This is the book Less by Andrew Sean Greer. It is a story about a gay man whose young lover of nine years breaks up with him and and pledges to marry a contemporary and then invites uh, our protagonist, Arthur Less, to the wedding um, and Arthur can't bear the thought of going and seeing the love of his life marry another. He can't bear the thought of staying home pouting and being gossiped about by everyone at the wedding and thus decides to accept every invitation that has been extended to him uh, to weird literary festivals and strange prizes and, uh, you know, kind of bullshit travel writing assignments so that he can travel around the world for nine months uh, while he avoids the marriage of his former lover and uh, also his impending 50th birthday party. So I didn't know anything about this novel except the loose outlines of the plot. And upon reading it, was really struck by the type of book it is, which is not the type of book that I think of as being a Pulitzer winning book because it reads like light romantic fiction. It reads honestly like the sort of book that if it were written by a female author about a heterosexual relationship instead of entanglements might have been not totally considered in the Pulitzer camp, not because just because of the way such work is classified. And I I think this book is absolutely deserving of every prize and really profound and fascinating because one of the things that it does is put uh, an aging gay man at the center of the story and then interrogate what romance and aging mean for a group of people who, you know, for a few generations very rarely and seldomly got to experience aging because of AIDS um, and for whom the, the romantic possibilities and options have complicated and expanded because of the expansion of marriage rights. Um, so it, it takes this kind of light comedic touch and tone, the sort that doesn't have like weighty doorstop, I'm a serious novel uh, temperament forged into the prose, but does something incredibly profound and beautiful in this light comedic style uh, and I love it. And I'm just like dying to talk about it with everybody a year late. So I would hope that all podcast listeners will read it and then we can start a year late national conversation about this book. <laughs> um, have you read it? I have not. But, you know, yesterday I was at Books or Magic, my neighborhood uh, bookstore, and it is flying off the shelves there. Literally every person who is buying books at that bookstore, except for me, was buying a copy of it. They were placing it in everyone's hand. Everyone there loves that book. Everyone I know who's read it I adores it. I think it's really good. Thank you. 
You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today on our show page at slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note on Facebook at facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer is Benjamin Frisch. Our production assistant is Alex Barish. For Isaac Butler and Ingu Kang, I'm Julia Turner, and we'll see you soon. We'll be right back. 